How many of you would like $100? Raise your hand. Only about half of you, okay. Well, my mother always told me that if you have something to give people and you don't have enough to go around, uh, then you can't, you can't give to anybody. And uh, so sorry about that. <laughs> None of you get it. But seriously, this is a brand new uh, $100 bill, uncirculated, clean, just came from the bank on Friday, probably from the uh, printing office a week or so before that. If I were to dunk it in uh, water here, would you still be in? How many of you would still want it? More of you want it now. (laughs) There you go. What if I were to take it, crumble it up? You still interested? How about now? Yep, you're still interested? Why? Why? Why would you want a crumbled, wet, dirty $100 bill? Because it's still worth 100 bucks, right? Crumbling it, dunking it in water, putting it on the ground, stomping on it, putting on the train tracks, letting the train run over it. It doesn't make any difference. It's still worth $100 because that $100 bill has an intrinsic value that isn't dependent on what it looks like on the outside. And we can see its true worth in spite of its external appearance, in spite of what it looks like. And this morning, we're going to look at a story, the story of the prodigal son, which uh, I would assume many of you are familiar with. And if you're not, you will be as the, uh, after the morning ends. But the Stones and, and the, uh, the group before them uh, took that song and uh, made it into a, uh, took that story and made it into a song because it was one that, that told a message that they wanted to tell. And uh, Jesus uses this story to make a point that's somewhat similar to the one I was making about the $100 bill. So what I want to do is start by reading the story. It comes from Luke chapter 15, the Gospel of Luke. Luke was uh, a historian and a doctor uh, who recorded uh, the life of Jesus in, in the Bible. And so I want to read from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Then Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. After a few days, the younger son gathered together all that he had and left on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. Then, after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and worked for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to eat the carob pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have food enough to spare, but here I am dying from hunger? I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him and his heart went out to him and he ran and hugged his son and kissed him. And then his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Hurry, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field and he came and approached the house and he heard music and dancing. 
So he called one of the slaves and asked what was happening. The slave replied, your brother's returned and your father's killed the fattened calf because he got his son back safe and sound. But the older son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and appealed to him. But he answered his father and said, look, these many years I've worked like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, he's devoured your assets with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You know, Jesus was a great storyteller and whenever he told his stories, he always had a point that he wanted to make. He didn't tell them just for entertainment value, though uh, all of Jesus' stories are interesting, they're entertaining. He always wanted to make a point with his stories and he was often doing that in response either to a question that someone asked or to a challenge that someone had given usually to his authority. And in this particular case, that was what was going on. See, earlier in the chapter, the Jewish religious leaders had been questioning the fact that Jesus was hanging out with sinners. And in that day and age, sinners usually referred to people like prostitutes and um, IRS agents. Uh, and that's, in fact, that's the way it was. The, the uh, tax collectors in those days were uh, Jews who were paid by the Romans to collect taxes And in order to make money themselves, they could collect more than they were supposed to. And so they were viewed as traitors uh, by the Jewish people because they were working for the Romans at the expense of their their fellow Jews. And so the Jewish religious leaders looked down on these people. They They were viewed as not worthy of God's love. And so with Jesus, who is, by the way, a Jewish rabbi, with Jesus hanging out with them, the Jewish religious leaders are saying like, What's going on here? You know, Jesus, you ought not to be hanging out with them. And so Jesus actually tells three stories in order to respond to the challenge from the Jewish religious leaders. And this is the third of those three stories, and it's the longest, and so I thought we'd focus on that uh, this morning. Uh, As I mentioned, Jesus usually makes one or more points in these stories, and this morning I just want to look at two of several points uh, that Jesus makes in this story. And the first one is that we cannot outsin the love of God. No matter what we do, nothing we can do can put us beyond the reach of God's love. No one is so bad, no one has done something that is so bad that God can't love them. We can't outsin God's love. And that ran directly counter to the prevailing wisdom of the Jewish religious leaders. You see, in their mind, in order to be accepted by God, in order to be loved by God, you had to follow all the rules and regulations of the Jewish law to the letter. You had to follow them perfectly if you're to be accepted, if you're to be loved by God. So, from, from their perspective, these tax gatherers, the IRS agents, you know, the prostitutes, the sinners were people whom there is no way that God could love, and Jesus hanging out with them was just completely counter to anything that they could understand or imagine. 
And so Jesus' response to this prevailing wisdom of the Jewish religious leaders is found here in this parable, in this story, and specifically in the part uh, relating to the younger son. Now, if you think about the society in which we live today, if you were to walk down the street and stop someone, I don't care whether they are Christian or Jewish or Muslim or whatever it might be, if you were to stop the average person on the street and, and ask them, you know, on, on what basis does God accept human beings? Let's assume they're at least a mildly religious person. Nine times out of ten, they're going to say, well, if they're a good person, God accepts them, God loves them, whatever terms they would use. If they're a bad person, he's going to reject them. That's essentially what was going on here. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not exactly what it is, and let's, let's take a further look at what he says. So think about the younger son. Take a look at verse 12. In verse 12, he says, Father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. Now, when I, I was reading this, I said, that's a little kind of a bizarre way to put it. Maybe a better way, a, a, a way that we could translate it that might make it a little clearer what is exactly is going on there is he's saying, hey, Dad, you know, it doesn't look like you're going to be dying anytime soon, so how about giving me my inheritance now? I mean, in that culture, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, Dad... I wish you were dead so that I could have your money. You know, not a very sympathetic character, not the kind of guy you'd like to bring home to mom and dad and say, hey, this is the guy that I think I'm going to marry. You know, it takes a lot of what, what's in, in Yiddish, chutzpah. You know, can you say that? Chutzpah. There you go, chutzpah. If you're a little bit weak on your Yiddish, somebody once said that uh, chutzpah is when a man kills his mother and his father and then he throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. That's chutzpah, you know? You like that? That's good. If you didn't understand it, Rich will explain it to you afterwards. Seriously, this younger son has the chutzpah, you know, the audacity to tell his father to give him his inheritance now. He's saying, Dad, I don't want you. I want your money. I wish you were dead because I could have your money and I could go and do what I want to do. And surprisingly, the father says, okay, gives him his inheritance and the son takes off and he heads for Las Vegas. And when he arrives in Las Vegas, he does what everybody else does. He loses his shirt in Las Vegas there. You know, he has a fun time for a while, but he ends up at the casinos. He ends up with the prostitutes and... The odds are the longer he stays, he's going to lose his money. And in fact, you know, I was just reading in the paper uh, the other day, there's a drought going on in Las Vegas now. Same thing was happening way back then when he went to Las Vegas or whatever city he went to at that point. Famine comes, he runs out of money, he runs out of food, and he is in deep yogurt. So he ends up feeding the pigs. He ends up essentially enslaving himself to someone who sends him into the field to feed pigs. Now, don't miss the incredible irony in this situation. Here is a Jewish boy who comes from a wealthy home and he's off working for a Gentile, a non-Jew, feeding pigs. And in fact, not only is he feeding the pigs, he's wishing he could eat with the pigs. See, Jews don't even eat pigs, never mind eat with the pigs. And so for this, for this Jewish boy, it can't get any lower than this. 
Now, Jesus is not being anti-Semitic here. Jesus himself is a Jew. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, so he's not being anti-Semitic. What he's doing is he's, he's painting a picture for his audience that's going to be extraordinarily meaningful to them. For you and me, yeah, you know, we go and we have the ham and cheese sandwich, no big deal. For the, the, the Jews, we're not going to have a ham and cheese sandwich. They're definitely not going to, you know, invite the pigs to dinner either. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's painting this picture. It can't get any lower than this. And so then if you look at verses 17 to 19, you see that the young man, this young boy, 17, 18, 19, maybe 20 years old, he comes to his senses, is what the text says. He looks at himself and he says, what in the world am I doing here? You know, they don't even consider me fit to eat with the pigs. No one will even give me the pig food to eat. How many of my father's servants eat better than I do? They all do. You know, what kind of an idiot was I to leave home for this? He says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and I'm going to get down on my knees and I'm going to say, dad, I sinned against God because when he says I've sinned against heaven, that's, that's what he means. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I'm not, I I shouldn't be called, I'm not uh, qualified to be called your son. Just take me back as a slave, please. Take me back as a slave so at least I can have something to eat. So he gets up and he goes back home and he decides he's going to beg his father for mercy. But as he's going along the way, his father sees him from a long way off. Now this is not a normal situation. This means the father's been watching to see is his son going to come home. The father, when he sees him in a distance, runs, which is not done. A, a, a middle-aged Jewish man is not going to, you know, get up and, you know, hike up his little skirt, you know, robe kind of thing and start running after his son. There's an incredible love that's being shown there, you know, that, that the father has for the son. So he runs to him, gives him a big hug, calls his servant. He interrupts him before he can finish his little speech that he's got prepared. Calls his servant, says, give him the best clothes, kill the fatted calf. We're going to party because my son has returned home. And so sure enough, that's what they do. They clothe him in the best clothes. They kill the fatted calf and they have a big party. And for those of you who are history buffs, uh, this was the first example of the Atkins diet being used in recorded history there when they ate that fatted calf. And so if, if you're on the Atkins diet, you now have biblical support for it, and you can tell your friends that, you know, Jesus talked about it in one of his, one of his stories here. So anyway, what's the point of all of this? I mean, why this particular part of the story? It's because the younger son was the epitome of all the kind of people that the religious leaders thought were beyond the reach of God's love. He had rejected his father. You don't do that in Jewish society. He'd squandered his father's wealth. You don't do that in Jewish society. He'd behaved in a way that's not discussed in polite company, you know, the prostitutes and whatever else it might have been. Yet when he came back home, his father welcomes him with open arms. And when you think about it, in this story, the younger son represents, as I mentioned, the, the sinners, okay? Who's the father represent in this story? God, yeah. 
in this story, the father represents God. So when the Jewish religious leaders are saying essentially, Jesus, what in the world are you doing hanging out with these, these, these you know, people here? I can't even use that word, they would say. What are you doing hanging out with this scum? He says, because God would hang out with them. Because God loves them. Because God is concerned for them. Because God's love for people doesn't depend on whether they're a tax collector, whether they're a prostitute, whether they're a Jewish religious leader, whatever they do. That doesn't matter. God loves them in spite of the fact that, yeah, they're doing things that are obviously wrong. You can't outsin the love of God. We can't outsin the love of God. And this is one of the points that Jesus is trying to make. But he's also saying in this story, not only can we not outsin the love of God, we can't earn God's love either. And he makes this point in the interaction between the older son and the father. Now, the younger son, as I said, represents the sinners. The father represents God. The older son represents the Jewish religious leaders. And by this time in the story, they're catching on that they're the ones that are being uh, talk, talked about uh, as, the, as the older son. The older son is, you know, the stereotypical firstborn son. He works hard in the family business. He does everything he can to please his father. And uh, he figures he'll earn his, uh, his father's respect and his love by doing what his father wants him to do. He doesn't run around wild like his younger brother. And in fact, he thinks his brother's a jerk for taking the father's money and, and wasting it on parties and prostitutes and, and, and gambling and whatever else he did. So when, when his prodigal brother comes home, he wants to have nothing to do with him. And if you think about that movie clip you know, that we saw, the, the older brother's reaction is a whole lot more like the father in that particular movie clip we saw. And think about the contrast between the father in the movie clip and the father in the story here. And so the, the older brother, the Jewish religious leaders, are having the same kind of reaction that, you know, that uh, the, the judge, the father in the, uh, in the movie clip had. Look what the father says, though, to his son in verses 29 and 30. I'm sorry, take a look at what the son says to the father in 29 and 30. I've slaved for you. I've obeyed you. And you never even let me go to McDonald's with my friends. Yet you're throwing a party with filet mignon for this, you know, for this jerk of a brother of mine that's thrown away your money with prostitutes. And that's essentially what he's saying. You know, when, when he says, you didn't even give me a goat, that's sort of like the common meat. You know, it's McDonald's compared to the fatted calf filet mignon or whatever the, you know, prime rib, whatever your favorite cut of meat is there. He's, he's, he's angry with his brother, but not only is he angry with, with his brother, he's actually rebuking his father for the way his father's treating the brother. See, he knows that the right thing to do is for his father to do exactly what the father did in that movie and reject the son and say, I, ha- I want to have nothing to do with you. You are no longer my son. And so this older brother, he's bristling with self-righteousness. He's bristling with judgment. He doesn't want his father to show mercy to his brother. He wants, to, he wants justice, not mercy. And that's exactly the attitude 
that the Jewish religious leaders had towards Jesus because he was hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. He thought that they thought that he shouldn't be doing that because it was the wrong thing to do, probably because it threatened them, because it made them feel threatened in the situation. And so rather than seeing himself as a son, now catch this, rather than seeing himself as a son, the older brother saw himself as a slave. Look at his language. I've slaved for you. I've obeyed every command. I've done everything you commanded me to do. Is that the language of a son? Or is that the language of a slave? What's going on here is the older brother thinks that he can earn his father's love by his behavior. But is that the way that a loving father treats his son or his daughter? Is that the way a loving mother treats her daughter or her son? No. You know, we don't need to earn God's love, God gives it freely because he cares about us, because we're his children, because he created us, because he wants to have a relationship with us. And so, essentially, what we have here is both the younger brother and the older brother have the attitude of, it's my behavior that endears me to my father. The younger brother says, hey man, I have just totally blown it by my behavior. Maybe he'll have mercy on me. The older brother says, hey, I have worked my tail off for you. And this is what I get. This is the thanks that I get. You give this prodigal a party. What have you ever done for me? And the father's response in verse 31, son, you are always with me. Everything that belongs to me is yours. And he's saying to him, you don't have to do anything in order to earn my love. You already have it. All you have to do is ask and you can have it. You want a goat? It's yours. You want a robe? It's yours. You want a fatted calf? It's yours. You don't have to earn it. You're my son. Just ask for it and you can have it. Isn't that the way it so often is with us? I mean, think about this. Maybe you've been a follower of Christ for your entire life. If you're, if, if you're honest with yourself and with God and, and you stop and ask yourself, because I do this, you know, when we do something wrong, when we do something that we know is not pleasing to God, do you ever wallow in the guilt and the shame of that for a long time, wondering, well, man, you know, that's the 20th time I've done that this week. Maybe God doesn't really love me anymore. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ. Maybe you're new here. Maybe, you're, maybe this is your first time here at Renaissance Church. And, you know, as you were thinking about coming here, you're like, you know, I went to church once 20 years ago and, and uh, you know, I, I just came out of there feeling like God must hate me because of the way, that, uh, the way that they treated me. And then someone invited you to come back today because they said it's a, it's a different kind of a church and, and you came. You know, how do you, why do you think that God loves you or doesn't love you? Is it because of the way that you live your life? Is it because of the way you act? A lot of people think that that's the case. But Jesus is saying, absolutely not. God doesn't love us any less whether we're a a tax collector, a a prostitute, you know, you name it. And he doesn't love us any more whether we're rich teeters, pastor of Renaissance Church, you know. He doesn't love rich any more than he loves the drunk 
who's sleeping on the street. And he doesn't love the drunk who sleep on the street any less than he loves Rich or me or you or anyone else. God's love cannot be earned and it cannot be lost by the way in which we behave. So if we can't earn God's love, how can we, how can we experience it? How can we see God's love in our lives? I think the answer is found in what happened with the younger brother. When he... As, as Luke puts it, when he came to his senses, when he recognized that the way he was going was leading to, to, to destruction, really, when he recognized his need, when he said, what in the world am I doing? I thought this was the way to go, but look at where it's got me. When he came to his senses and he said, I'm going to come to my father and just beg him for mercy. And what did his father do? He didn't just give him mercy. He poured out his love on him in, a, in, in an incredible display that everybody, whether it was the slaves, the older brother, whoever it might be, that everybody stood up and took notice. He poured out his love on him in a way that was beyond the younger son's wildest hopes and dreams. He was just hoping that maybe he'd get something to eat. And instead the father throws the biggest party that they'd ever seen in the house. He throws that party for him. The father loved the younger son in spite of his rebellion. And interestingly, he loved his older son in spite of his self-righteousness. Isn't that one interesting? You know, if you work your way through the story and you ask yourself, what do you think of the younger brother at the beginning of the story? He's a jerk. I mean, let's put it it mild, you know, say what it is. He's a jerk. He tells his father, I wish you were dead. Can I just have your money? Okay, he runs off. He squanders the wealth. He ends up eating with the pigs and he finally comes to his senses and begs for mercy. So, you know, at the end of the story, you're like, yeah, okay, you know, I feel reasonably well towards, towards that younger son. What about the older son? I don't know about you, but my attitude towards the young, older, older son is he's the jerk at the end of the story. Can't he see that his father loves his brother? In fact, he doesn't even call him my brother. He says, that son of yours and then he goes off and blames his father for what he's doing. The older son's a jerk, you know? Forget him. But where's the father at the end of the story? The father has gone outside of the party and he's begging the older son to come into the party. He is showing the same love to the older son that the older son refused to show to his younger brother. He's so, showing the same love to the older son that he showed to the younger son. And that's the kind of God that Jesus is. So the Jewish religious leaders are saying, what kind of a person would hang out with people like this? Jesus says, this is the kind of person that would hang out with people like this. This is the kind of love that God has for the tax collectors and sinners. And by the way, for you too, religious leaders, This is the kind of love that that God has. This is the kind of love that I have. So Jesus' story ends then with the father standing outside inviting his older son to come in. And he doesn't finish the story. Does the son come in? Does he stay outside? We don't know. Jesus leaves it hanging. And I think he does that because he wants us to put ourselves in the older brother's shoes and say, okay, how are we going to respond? Are we going to respond like the younger brother? Come to God for mercy 
and enjoy the party? Or are we going to stay outside and nurse our anger, or whatever else we may have? Are we going to respond and are we going to enjoy and experience God's love? God's love is available to anybody who's willing to accept the fact that they don't deserve it, that they can't earn it, and that he gives it freely through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so whether we look like this, the, the, the crumbled, dirty, wet $100 bill or like the crisp, clean, new $100 bill, it doesn't matter. In God's sight, we are still of such worth that he sent his son to die in our place. Let's pray. Father, it's pretty overwhelming to read this story and recognize uh, the love that you have for us that doesn't depend on the way in which we live our lives. So often, that's, that's what we think. And I confess that's true for me uh, way too often. But Father, we thank you for the great love that you have for us, uh, whether, we're, whether we're running away from you like the, uh, the younger son, whether we're trying to earn your favor like the older son, whether we're somewhere in between. Father, I thank you for the great love that you have for us. And I pray for myself and for each one here uh, that we would know and experience your love in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.